Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-340 of the Run Run Live podcast. It is Memorial Day weekend this weekend in the States. It's officially summer. Wow. I had a May to remember. I'm telling you, you will never hear me say I'm overwhelmed, but these past weeks came close. I was back down in Atlanta this week. And I caught some sort of stomach bug for a few days that sapped my energy. But this morning, Friday morning, I feel great. Let me summarize my May adventures for you. I came in one Friday night from Atlanta. was the second trip of the week, having been in New Orleans earlier and having had pneumonia the week before. Rented a car, drove up to Teresa's graduation Saturday night for an all-day Sunday graduation, packed her up, drove back Sunday night, about 500 miles each way, repacked and headed out to Phoenix Monday, took Teresa with me, had a conference at the JW Desert Inn, super nice place, I was there Tuesday and Wednesday, up at 7 a.m. every day for, that is, East Coast time, 4 a.m. local time for calls, in the conference all day, squeezing my workouts in, And meanwhile, she slept late and floated around the pool. Grabbed the rental car Wednesday night and headed up to Flagstaff. Crashed out for the night, got up early, drove to the canyon, into the trailhead at Bright Angel around 7 a.m., down to Phantom Ranch in about eh, three and a half hours. Turn around, push back up and out in around eh, nine hours. Jumped in the car, drove to Sedona for dinner and crashed. Friday morning for 7 a.m. again on the East Coast, 4 a.m. local time for three hours of conference calls. Had some breakfast, took a short trail hike up Oak Creek, some yoga to loosen the creaky bodies up, showered up, off again. Sightseeing around Camp Verde and Montezuma's Castle and an early barbecue dinner and off to the airport for a 10.30 red-eye back to Boston Saturday morning. Back on a plane Monday morning to Atlanta, suffering with a sore tummy and no energy all week. And now it's Memorial Day weekend. Made it! (laughs) Didn't drop too many things in the process except sleep, my health, (laughs) and most of my run, run, live, to-do list. And that's why this show, this one here, episode 3-340, is all me, because I didn't have time to get any outside editing as I fell behind on my production schedule. And did I mention you people are great? Did I mention I had a crazy spring? Yeah, but as crazy as all that sounds, my life is nothing compared to what our guest today did. Becca Peasy was the first American woman to do the seven marathons on seven continents in seven days last year. And we have a great conversation about it. I'm going to give you the Becca interview right up front and then give you my overly long Grand Canyon adventure summary. I'll leave it at that because I don't want to go over my time limit again. 
Our Grand Canyon experience was pretty tough and totally cool. I'm so happy I was able to spend these days doing something interesting and worthy with my baby. We had a blast. I'm fun to travel with because I'm a 30-year travel veteran. I have status on all the airlines and hotels I stay at, so I get treated really well. And this gives me a certain chill fluidity in the chaos of the travel world. I just skate right through like a ghost, having a grand old time. The Run Run Live podcast is ad-free and listener-supported. We do this by offering a membership option where members get access to exclusive members-only audio. Currently on the members' feed is my Eastern States 20-miler race report and the third installment of a three-part series on the podcast that I listen to. Very cool. So for the cost of a set of 10 Legend of Zelda-themed fake million-dollar bills, yeah, that's an actual thing on Amazon, you can be a member of the Run Run Live support crew. Links are in the show notes and at runrunlive.com. Sometimes... The universe seems to be against you, right? In all religions, there's a universal trickster that tries to unravel your well-made plans. Coyote, Loki, Shiva. There was a lot of counter-pressure that was trying to keep me from running the Grand Canyon. I had to schedule the skeleton of the trip a couple months ahead of time. I don't know about your life, but mine doesn't lend itself to planning two and a half months out. And as soon as you put something like this on the calendar, the world begins conspiring to make you regret it by coming up with far more important things that you should be doing exactly on that day. So you have to just bite the bullet, commit to something, and then hold fast, hold on for dear life in the buffeting winds of circumstance. Teresa and I had a great father-daughter moment. Running the canyon was a hard thing to do, and that gives us that shared legacy of conquering hard things that is one of the important aspects of an endurance sports lifestyle. Life isn't easy all the time. You get tired, you get knocked around, you get sick. You show up and do the best you can with what you have. You try to be grateful for what you can squeeze free of the vortex of time and hold those moments and shared sacred things close as something timeless. On with the show. And now for today's featured interview. And we'll just start. So thank you for finding uh, time for me. Thanks for having me. So why don't we do this? Why don't you... uh, Introduce yourself and give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do and why I chased you down. Yeah, so I am Becca Peasy. I'm 36 years old from Belmont, Massachusetts, six miles away from Boston. And I recently made history when I became the first American female to run seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. Right. Have you always been like an ultra runner type? I have never run an ultra marathon in my life. So um, my training was a different approach. So I, at the time, had 45 marathons in extreme conditions, so I was confident in my base. So have you always been a runner? I've always been a runner. I started running when I was six years old and competed through college and never stopped. Yeah, so you had the, a decent base and you knew what you were doing. Right. So work with us here on how you got to that moment in time where you said, I want to do this thing. I read about it on the Marathon Maniacs homepage and thought, I can get that done, and it was an opportunity for me to show the world that if you believe in yourself, anything is possible, and um, I went for it, and I knew that failure was not an option and that I needed to finish what I started. It was $36,000, so I had to find people to cover my sponsors to help me with the race fee, so I didn't want to let them down, my family down, I didn't want to let my sponsors down, so I had to do it. I had to finish. But what was that point? Were you out on a run or were you at some point where the switch sort of flipped for you? To run the race? No, to do this. Say, I'm going to do this. No, I read about it. And from when I read about it, adrenaline kicked in and took over. And I started to 
communicate with the 12 runners from the previous years and ask them what they thought about it and if they would do it again. And I did my homework on it. I needed to be sure that this was something that I would be training very, very hard over the course of the year. The very first thing that I did was ask my seven-year-old daughter. At the time, she was seven. She's eight now. What do you think about this race? And she said, yeah, mom, I think you could do that. And I needed her approval on it. This was not something that I could train for and do without her help and have her be okay with this. Right. So family first. But so explain to us exactly what the logistics are here to get through this cycle. Yeah. So we um, started in Antarctica and then went to Chile, Miami, Madrid, Morocco, Dubai, and then Australia. We had 168 hours to run seven marathons. So we averaged 10 hours per continent and everything that we did, we and ran, eat, sleep, repeat on a plane. So there were no hotels. There was, it was nothing quite like that. Although we did get to sleep and have some rest in hotels, but it wasn't really overnight or anything like that. Everything that we did was on a plane or we were running or going through customs every day. Yeah. So there's a lot of, um logistics to it, right? So yeah. when I talk to people who do these sort of things, the number one response is the logistics was the hardest part. It was a logistical nightmare. When we started the race, we didn't have a chartered plane. We did from Chile to Antarctica. We took the Russian illusion, but then we're still going through customs every day, which takes time. And we average 10 hours per continent. Four of those hours are running. Then we're going to the race, coming home from the race, Running, I mean, heading to the airport. So it was very well organized event. If we missed our first flight, we were booked on the second flights out. So the race director, Richard Donovan, did a phenomenal job at organizing this event. And he worked really hard to make sure that it was went well. So you were doing the same thing with a bunch of other folks? There were 15 spots from around the world. Yeah. And what was the mix, guys and, and uh, women? 11 men and four women. Yeah. So... People always think the hardest part is the running, but it's not. It's all the stuff in between, right? When you finally get to the run, that becomes harder because of all the stuff in between that you have to get through, not sleeping, not eating. I got to the starting line in Antarctica and thought, you're going to have to get real comfortable being uncomfortable over these next seven days. But I also did that in my training. I was tired all the time and hungry all the time, and it was just a different me. But I knew that I needed to get through that, and people say, what was the hardest part of the race? The hardest part was being away from my daughter for 16 days. That's an eternity for a seven-year-old. And that made me fight harder. And there was a point where I tore my groin in Dubai. And I was at mile two, marathon six. And I thought, Tom Brady says, I didn't come this far just to come this far. So I got up and finished running. And I was in extreme amount of pain. But at that time, when I crossed the finish line, I was six marathons in with one more to go. And I thought... You have 15-hour flight to Australia, and you're four hours away from making history. So it's up to you whether or not you want to finish this or end it and go home. So I thought of my daughter, and I thought that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life apologizing to people for, for not finishing. But um, I did have a torn groin, and it was excruciating pain, so I just took one mile at a time. Yeah, and a groin's a tough thing because it's it's a little thing, Yeah, but it makes it really hard to run. I couldn't walk. I was thinking, yeah. I thought, you can't walk. How are you going to run? And um, I just took one mile at a time. And, you know, it, you, if you've ever torn your groin, it's very painful. But I thought it would be far more painful to not finish. Right. You were able to maintain your sort of toughness through the event because you knew something like that would happen. If it wasn't the groin, it would be something else, I meant right? It would be. Prepared myself. Yeah, I mentally prepared myself for pain, for fatigue. And at that time, everybody else had some sort of injury. Some had stress fractures, shin splints, something, you know, everybody was uncomfortable. You can't run six marathons in six days and on six continents and not be. So we were all heading into our seventh marathon in, you know, <laughs> in, in the same, kind of the same place. It's like the walking wounded, no, right? Was, Shuffle it off the plate. And um, I was very lucky to not get this injury in marathon three or four. I was very, very lucky to get it at the end. So were you able to... Um with the new social media access, were you able to send postcards home from the different events, from, you know, let people know what was going on and keep the story going? I was able to call in my daughter from Antarctica, and that was through satellite phone, and then I was able to Skype with her on every continent. Great. So you think that uh, by setting this example, that's going to, you know, how, how does this encourage or help other folks by setting this example yeah, back up? I just 
feel like I'd love to inspire runners and not only to be a better runner, to be a better parent, to be a good role model. And um, I really feel like I did that and the community has been outstanding. And I crossed the finish line in Australia and I had 1,300 emails and, and I loved it. And it was just truly so much fun. And I've seen more confidence in my daughter. She loves gymnastics and she's been working really, really hard. And I know that it's rubbed off on her a little bit. And it's really exciting to see her have more confidence in herself. Because I think part of the benefit for people who are, are watching or observing people like you who do things like this, yeah. part of the benefit is it breaks their frame of reference. Yeah. Right. So I was uh, having drinks with a guy this week in New Orleans, and I said, yeah, from Boston 2013 to Boston 2014, I was pretty upset, so I decided to run a marathon a month. Yeah. And he fell out of his chair. He said, how could somebody do that? And knowing somebody like you and the other people I know who have run 50 marathons in 50 days yeah. or 365 marathons every day for a year, mm-hmm. it's like, that's nothing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it breaks their frame of reference yeah. and allows them to think, well, if these people can do these things, yeah. then maybe I can do this. Yeah, it's, that's my biggest compliment when somebody says, I ran a 5K because of you, or I'm going to train for a marathon because of you. I feel like at the end of the day, I've done my job. So has anybody interesting reached out to you since this, and uh, has this created any uh, new cool connections for you? Yeah, it's it's been incredible. I just signed on with Newton Running, and they're based out of Colorado. Sure. I met with the CEO of Sam Adams, who was incredibly nice guy and I tapped the first Boston beer keg in Boston and with him and that was awesome and I got to throw out the first pitch at Fenway Park wow where my boyfriend at the time asked me to marry him on the mound and that has never been done in Red Sox history and I got a standing ovation from the Senate and the House of Representatives at the State House and I mean I literally I got to go to Nora O'Donnell in New York Channel 4 um, nationwide and it, it's just been the journey's been incredible and way it just built up so much momentum and it's been so much fun. I got to meet with Meb the weekend of the Boston Marathon. He was the last American to win the Boston Marathon and he told me I paved the way for his daughters and what an honor. And I just got back from New York City where I got to meet the New York City Marathon team at their headquarters and the people that put on the New York City Marathon and I also got to motivational speak for the John Hancock and it's just all because I believed in myself and it just means everything in the world to have so many people care about me. Right and I saw pictures of you with McGilvery this year as well so you're hooked in with that whole crew that's a great great uh, community. David McGilvery has been incredibly supportive of me and I'm running I'm going to be a celebrity at his uh, Runner's World Classic event in North Andover. Right. I saw that yesterday. Yeah. I saw that email come out. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's like everybody's including me on everything. And I feel so lucky because it would be the worst thing in the world for me to believe in myself, have these dreams and I do it and no one cares. So I feel very fortunate. Yeah. So a couple of key things there. One is that if you would sat back and said, oh, started asking people, should I do this or is this possible? You probably would have got half the people saying, no, that's a bad idea. You're going to waste a lot of money and get hurt or whatever, right? Just all the negative people. Yeah, sure. This event is not for everybody. And I I was in the Wall Street Journal and somebody was like, oh, she's not saving the world. And I don't claim to save the world. And I'm not curing cancer. I'm just trying to be the best person that I, and the best role model that I can be. Some This event is not for some people. And they may call it unhealthy. I had two doctors telling me that I was in great health. And they had absolutely no reason to believe that I was unhealthy or doing anything unhealthy. And so unfortunately, with the negativity, it comes with that, and, and that's okay. Yeah, but you, you're going to get that when you put yourself out there anyhow. Yeah. Haters, haters are haters. haters. It, it's not about you. It's about them. Yeah. But what you did is you chose to do something, yeah. right? Yeah. And so in your case, you chose to go big, but everybody can choose to do something, right? And those are those daily decisions, those those decisions you make as any kind of athlete to do something you're going to pay the path for the next person. Yeah, and I know the runner, Beth Ann, who's representing America next year, and I've been there for her the way that Mariana from Finland has been there for me. And you help each other, and run, the running community is phenomenal. Everybody helps each other. It's no longer about me. It's how can I help the next people, and I've, left, I've made journals for them to read and what's helped me on each continent and what didn't help me or what worked for me and what didn't. I'm more than happy to share my thoughts on the race, and I loved everything about it. But I think, you know, people say, what did you learn? And I learned to believe in myself. And when you believe in yourself, you can do anything you put your mind to. Another typical thing that happens when people do these sort of events, whether it's, you know, sort of run across the United States or any of these things, is there are some low points, 
right? Yeah. Did you ever hit one of those where you said, what am I doing here? I'm a fraud. Uh, I don't so, deserve this. You know, I did learn that the, the highs are really high and the lows were incredibly low. And I met with an energy coach, Donna, a couple of days before I left. And she said, what are your three biggest fears of the race? And I said, missing my daughter and being hungry and being tired. And she said, don't let those three things happen at one time or you're going to have a very bad day. And sure enough, I tore my groin and I didn't eat and I was missing my daughter. And all of those three things happened at one time and my world came down. And I thought, how am I going to pull out of this? And you figure it out. And the other runners, when they realize you're not in a good place, they come over and help you. But I never thought I'm not going to finish this race. It was just never an option. It was how I'm going to finish this race. But the lows were low and the highs were high. Yep. Yep. And that's real typical. You know, you hear the ultra runners say that all the Mm -hmm. time, right? You have to. And the way you get through that is, like you said, you don't give yourself an an out. No. Right. You say that's not an option. So no matter what happens, that's not an option. You just have to keep your guard up the entire time. So you're a relatively young uh, lady. What are you going to do with your next 20 years? I mean, where do you go from here? People are like, what's next? And I. Yeah. Yeah. We want to know. I will run an Ironman. An Ironman is definitely on my radar this year and I'm 27 states in of the 50 marathons so I'm going to finish out that in the next three or four years all right I mean so you've got all these celebrity connections now you can probably get a slot at Kona yeah, and go go do Kona as your first Ironman that's, those are my thoughts that's probably because I will run one Ironman I probably will never ever run another one so um if it, so it's got to be Kona right so all the age groupers are uh, pounding their heads on the on the table now right oh I'm gonna uh, get rocked I can't <laughs> I, I have to figure out how to do something other than the doggy paddle yeah that's not gonna make it in Kona yeah but I mean that's one of the things that I tell people that when people ask that question what are you gonna do next it's really I don't know right? I don't know Yes. But it's going to be something different. It, it is, and that would be different for me. And I'll put in the train. I hate to waste my base. I feel like the joke is that I'm more fit now than I was in college. And um, even having a daughter now, and, and I work seven days a week, I think I'm very relatable. I'm working seven days a week. I have a child, and if I can do it, you can too. But I love the different. I really had a fun time over the course of the year, and I'm really looking forward to training for an Ironman. Right. You've got that adventure, gene yeah. in your DNA. I've got the same yeah, thing. So if it's, if it's weird, it's hard there's snow or rain or ice or there's some sort of thing that makes it hard then I'm in right yeah and so the uh, the world's your oyster you can do the uh, yeah. you can do the mountain bike ultras we get a lot of those around mm-hmm. here that are pretty good you can uh, do the swimming stuff we get a lot of those around mm-hmm. here and I think it's great to be talking to somebody from Massachusetts Thanks. in this uh, community because Massachusetts is a well there's a couple of hot spots well New England in general sure around Colorado there's one up by Portland where it's just this running zeitgeist, yeah. right? And uh, it's a whole different view of the world in terms of the running community than Topeka, Kansas. Oh, yeah. I'm just randomly grabbing a name out of the air. Yeah. So when you were growing up here, did that influence um, your values at all? There are, I'm six miles from the finish line of the Boston Marathon, so everybody runs. But if they're not running, there are a ton of active people and I belong to like four running clubs and everybody works out. And, and starting at a young age, my my daughter's six, I mean eight now, and she's in all sorts of sports, gymnastics, dance and soccer and running and all. This. So I did get a head start by working out young. Yeah. And then you went through college and uh, ran in college. Yeah. Did you have a slump after that? I mean, typically, I know for me uh, coming out of college, it was like, well, I don't really want to do this anymore. I want to drink beer and watch TV for a couple of years. Um, no, I was 10 marathons in coming out of college and I want, I knew that running the 50 states was really important to me. So I knew that I could start knocking them off because if I took a lot of time off and I probably wouldn't get back into it. So yeah. I just started chipping away at the marathons when I got out of college. What states do you have left? So I'm 27 sure. states in, but unfortunately I already did the Hawaii and Alaska and all the really fun ones. So my last one's probably going to be some random one in some random state, but that's okay. Yeah. I have sort of the ones that you can drive to. Yeah. Right. I have a circle around me. And then, of course, there's New York and yep. Chicago and yeah. Texas, yeah. sort of the big races. Yeah, I did. All those. But uh, I've got this big block out on the west that I haven't done any except Idaho. Yeah, I'm doing so Idaho. All the... Actually, I'm doing Idaho in um, October. Oh, OK. Yeah. Oh, in Utah. I've done Utah. Oh, yeah. St. George. Uh, I did St. George, Utah and loved it. I did the one that comes down the Utah Valley one, oh, wow. the one that starts up by Paul Newman's old oh, house. Oh, wow. and Comes down the canyon, yeah, and finishes in Ogden. Really nice oh, cool. race. But it's one of those uh, drop 
3,500 feet races. Yeah. So you got to be careful how you run the first half. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, great. So I enjoyed uh, talking with you. I'll move you towards the exit. So you got anything you want? You know, how do people see, find you? You got any offerings or anything you want to? Sure. My blog is laughterisagreatabworkout.com, and it's really funny, and it kind of talks about the journey of where I've been and what I've done throughout the marathon challenge. So are you going to try to spin this into a, a book or something? Probably. Yeah, the book's still writing. This book's still going, so I probably will. If you if you read it, it's a good read. I had a friend leave yeah. it, and um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And so do you have the uh, – now that you're you're hanging out with McGilvery <laughs> and all those guys, you probably have the movie producers calling you? <laughs> no. No? I, no, I'll do a book, but probably not a movie. On Netflix over the weekend, I watched the Barkley oh, movie, yeah. the Barkley Marathon movie. I, really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's, you talk about hard. Yeah, that's wow. incredible. So maybe that's your next yeah. thing. You can go to the Barkley. <laughs> Except for I can't. My, my body shuts off after 26.2, so I probably will never run an, an ultra marathon. Yeah. Maybe. Well, Who knows? Never know. Never, never, never know. All right. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you. I'll let you get back to uh, your busy life, Thanks. and I'll get on with mine. And I appreciate Thanks, it. Sure. All right? Okay. See you later. All right. Congratulations. Okay, bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Grand Canyon, in and out in a day. I probably shouldn't have followed through on this adventure. I didn't have time in my life to do it, and the universe conspired to keep me from doing it. And when I saw this conference on the calendar earlier in the year, I knew I had an opportunity to do it and set my planning wheels in motion. Maybe the universe was daring me, trying to catch me, with my own ego. I had toured the area earlier in the year, in January, when I ran the Phoenix Rock and Roll Marathon. We visited the canyon, and I was overwhelmed with the awesome grandeur of that big, colorful hole in the earth. I wasn't equipped to hike it at that time, but I knew it was something I wanted to do. I flew out from Boston on Monday, still on antibiotics from a bout of pneumonia the week before. It was a May full of travel. We had just driven six hours back from Teresa's graduation in Rochester Sunday night and unloaded all her stuff, and we packed and headed for the airport. <laughs> I worked the conference all day Tuesday and Wednesday, and when I say all day, I mean all day. Phoenix is three hours behind Boston, so those 7 a.m. East Coast conference calls, they started at 4 a.m. Phoenix time. My schedule was up at a quarter till four, talk on the phone for an hour, work out, shower, throw on my suit, and be at breakfast for 7.30 Phoenix time. Conference all day, dinner, and back to the room to try to catch enough sleep to be vertical the next morning. I need my sleep. And I was going on a couple weeks of deficit. So yeah, I dragged my 21-year-old daughter along with me. She hung out at the resort pool all day on a little R&R. I figured we were a good match for the canyon. I was fairly fit, and she was young. You can do anything when you're young. We snuck out of the conference Wednesday night and grabbed a hotel room in Flagstaff, an hour and a half away from the trailhead, and we rolled out early and managed to get into the park before the crowd showed up. I had bought a National Parks Pass last month, and I recommend it to anyone who plans to explore the country. It's a great deal, and it makes everything so much easier. We found a parking spot about a uh, hundred feet away from the Bright Angel Trailhead on the south rim of the canyon. We got there just after 7 a.m. You have to get there early if you want to park close to the trailhead. Otherwise, you'll be stuck in remote parking waiting for the shuttle bus. Everyone had warned us that it would be a cold day at the trailhead in the morning when we started. It really wasn't. It was mid-40s, a crisp, clear morning, very comfortable. We stuffed our jackets into our packs just to be safe if we might need them later. The other thing we had been warned about was to bring enough water. 
like you're crossing the Gobi or the Sahara or something. We each had a full water backpack and two extra 24-ounce bottles. And I can see how people might get in trouble on the trail, especially in the heat, but we had way more water than we needed. There are fill stations every couple miles along the whole route, down and back. We had some bananas, some apples, a couple cliff bars for fuel. We wore shorts and running shoes. I had my Hoka trail shoes. I also had my Garmin with the heart strap. And I also wore my Fitbit just for fun. Our plan was to run jog down to the river and then over to Phantom Ranch and then make the return trip back out. We had no time goals and it would just be in the moment and have fun with it. We took a couple minutes to use the facilities and clown around with the mules at the trailhead. The mule train was getting ready to depart with a load of tourists, and we beat them into the canyon and didn't see any mules until our trip back out. We strapped on our water packs and we headed in. We were in high spirits. This trail is very well maintained. It's flat, four to six feet wide, very well built and clearly delineated. The surface is loose dirt and gravel. There are many log steps or stone steps built into the decline. These aren't stairs per se, more like water breaks to keep the dirt in the trail. It's high desert, so there isn't much vegetation except the desert plants. But there is one section that has a lot of vegetation and trees. There is occasional mule poop, but other than that, the trails are very nice. The only surprise to us was that the desert dirt was quite dusty. After a few miles, you were covered with dust like a sugar donut. This was made worse by the sunscreen and the sweat. This fine dust and sand gets into your shoes and into your socks, and we had to stop to dump out our shoes every so often. And some of the rangers we saw were actually wearing face coverings to keep the dust out of their lungs, and we felt it for a couple days, like smoking a pack of cigarettes. There is scrub brush and prickly pear. This time of year, all the plants are flowering because it's springtime, and the prickly pear were sporting jaunty pink and yellow flowers. Very pretty. The scenery is just stunning. As you drop down the walls of the canyon, you progress through millions of years of rock striations, and there are layers of different colors and textures of rocks. It's red and green and purple and white. It's just stunning. The visuals are stunning. And there are critters in and along the trail, lots of little lizards that come in different colors, and they skitter across the trail in front of you or stop on a rock or a branch to challenge you, puffing up their red chins and doing their aggressive lizard push-ups to scare you off. There are also fat, aggressive squirrels, there are a lot of signs telling you not to engage with the fat, aggressive squirrels. Apparently, they have a bad attitude. We also saw some mule deer near the Indian Gardens point, where there are more trees and the climate is a bit more forgiving. The environment changes several times as you descend. The top few miles are high desert. About three to four miles in, you enter a sheltered area where a creek starts. And here, there is lots of vegetation and big trees. There are even muddy spots in the trail here. As you get down close to the river, it goes stark. Sort of surface of Mars desert conditions. The trail drops down from the rim in a series of steep switchbacks, then levels out a bit in the Indian Gardens area, and then the last bit down to the river is another series of steep switchbacks. To get over to Phantom Ranch, you have to continue on another mile or so along the river and across one of the pedestrian suspension bridges to the north side of the river where the campground is. It was quite comfortable on the descent for us. We were walk-jogging, or what Teresa called wogging, running pretty much, and making great time. The first couple miles have petroglyphs on the walls and tunnels, more like rock arches, that the trail goes through. I took off my shirt at Indian Gardens and went shirtless from that point on. It wasn't too hot, and I really wasn't sweating much at all. We had on plenty of sunscreen, and I brought a tube of lube with me in case something started to chafe or blister. It was a glorious day. 
mid-70s with a bright blue sky with puffy Toy Story clouds wandering across it. I set the pace and Teresa followed behind as we skipped down the trail. People would see me coming and get out of my way. They didn't have to. The people coming up have the right of way, but I must have been scary looking, half-naked old guy with the chest strap bouncing down the trail. I kept an eye on my heart rate, but it was staying well within or below even zone one. Teresa was working a bit harder, but we were doing okay. We were having fun. We stopped and used the restrooms when we had opportunities, and we took breaks to snack. Yes, there are restrooms every couple of miles, as well as water and emergency phones. It's a well-traveled trail. We passed people coming up who were doing it the recommended way, which is to hike down one day, stay at the campground, and then hike back up in the morning. There is actually a sign, I took a picture of it, at the three-mile rest station that warns you not to attempt to go down and back in one day. You will die. Many of the people coming up had big overnight packs and hiking poles, and the predominant theory seemed to be to cover up as much as possible. Most of the hikers had long pants, big hats, and puffy, long-sleeved pirate shirts. We had our cell phones with us, but there's very limited reception once you get into the canyon, so we switched them into airplane mode and used them as cameras. We even passed what seemed to be a school field trip going down. Teresa came up with a new application for her iPhone. It's an idea that she calls Mueller, where you could request an on-demand mule service in the canyon. Indian Gardens is where a lot of people turn around. It's about eh, four miles down and you've lost about a half a mile of elevation. The rim sits around 6,000 feet, which is about the same elevation as Denver. And when you get down into Indian Gardens, you lost uh, almost half of that in about four miles, four, four and a half miles. And it catches people by surprise. We made it to the Colorado River all the way to the bottom in about two and a half hours at a leisurely walk jog with lots of breaks. The maps I've seen have different numbers, but it's somewhere in the vicinity of 7 to 8 miles. It was about 10 a.m. There was a little beach there with another rest house and a couple river rafts tied up, but nobody was around. We took a 30-minute or so break to wash our feet in the river, have a snack, and do a little foot care with the lube. I also made sure we took a couple Endurolites to keep our salts up. There's no vegetation down by the river. It flows big and cold and green in May. It sure is something to be down there in the canyon, soaking your feet in the Colorado River. I'll tell you, it's something. It was getting hot now, but not as hot as everyone had warned us about. It was sunny and creeping up into the 80s, but nothing awful. We packed up and headed over the extra mile and a half or so to the Bright Angel Campground. This section from the river over to Bright Angel was fairly stark with lots of fine sand in the trail that made it slow going, like hiking on the beach. You cross the suspension bridge into the Bright Angel campground. And it's like walking out of the forest into somebody's Memorial Day cookout. All of a sudden there's people everywhere, cabins, campsites. And I'm not sure all those people hiked in. I think they may have come in by raft. We got to the canteen in the Phantom Ranch about eh, three and a half hours. We went to the canteen and got the best iced coffee I have ever tasted. I'm telling you. <laughs> because I had to run down into the Grand Canyon to get to it. We took a long break in the air-conditioned canteen. Yeah, really roughing it down there. And sent some postcards. You can do that. And eventually we had to get going, so we filled our packs with water and headed back. And it was hot now. This was probably a tactical mistake on our part. If we left a couple hours earlier at the top, we could have been through this exposed part down by the river before the heat of the day showed up. It wasn't horrible, but it is full sun with no cover and maybe 90 degrees in there, that sort of range. But the rocks heat up, and they radiate the heat all around you, so you're like a pizza in a brick oven. So I started to power hike up the switchbacks, and I turned around and looked, and Teresa was gone. 
The heat made her dizzy and a bit nauseous, so we geared down the effort and intensity and started hiking or walking as best we could. And once we got past the river, rest station again, she recovered. The bit between the river rest station and the suspension bridge on the way back and on the way out rises a couple hundred feet and has some great views of the river. We were able to watch the rafting tours come by and twirl in the rapids. And then the helicopter tours would buzz by at about eye level, dragging cameras behind them on long cables. At the river station on the return trip, we talked to a lady who was on a 14-day trip by raft down the Colorado. And she must have been about 70 years old. And she said they just tied her in through the rapids and she took the beating. That's something, huh? You want to be rafting down the Colorado when you're 70 years old. We were moving slower now, and it was the hottest part of the day, and we hiked and rested when we needed to. There weren't many hikers down by the river. We did pass the mule train, though, coming down. The Endura lights were a lifesaver in this hot section to keep our heads clear and our salt up to keep from cramping, and we both had swelling in our fingers on the way up and out. And not sure if that was due to the heat or the altitude or some sideways biochemistry byproduct of hiking hard for hours on end. It was a long, slow, hard hike back up from the river. Those first switchbacks up from the river in the full sun beat us up. We got a bit of respite into Indian Gardens again. This is where the crowds start to pick up. And the trail was busy with day hikers and overnighters climbing out. And the closer we got to the trailhead, the busier it got. And the last four plus miles up from Indian Gardens was a struggle, especially for Teresa. I was tired, but she had bonked out. So we'd hike a few hundred feet and then rest and repeat. But she wasn't complaining. She's tough. When she decides to do something, she gets it done. And like the sign says, going down is optional. Coming back up is mandatory. I was doing all the annoying things that I do when I'm trying to take people's minds off the task at hand late in a race, if you've ever run with me. I was singing and whistling and making up stories and monologues. There we were, 30 days in the desert when the last of the Sherpas died, and we had to eat the mules. Yeah, and towards the end I'd just say, hey... The only way to get to the trailhead is to keep moving. In the last couple of miles, the switchbacks get really steep, and you're back up at altitude. You've been on the trail all day, and the oxygen is starting to get thin. It's not like the end of a marathon. It's more like a mountain race where you have to do the hardest part last. Your legs take a beating. It's like doing 1,000 single-leg lunges in a row. And you have to consciously use both legs. By default, we tend to favor our dominant leg when we're on the trails. We always step up onto an obstacle with one leg. If you don't consciously switch legs, you get this weird unbalanced muscle exhaustion. On our way out, we got passed twice by the same runner. There was a, I guess he was an ultra runner or a mountain runner. He went flying by us as we were starting up from the river and then passed us again in the last section, running hard, still up past Indian Gardens. I guess he made the round trip, I would guess, in four to five hours. That's a good workout. Many of the day hikers on the trail looked like runners. They had tech race shirts on and wore shoes that I recognized. We kept on moving a little bit at a time up those steep switchbacks. Here we were, all tired and covered with dirt, having to push our way through the throngs of foreign tourists taking selfies on the trail. Teresa was in no mood for it and wanted to push them all off the edge. We were passing people and being passed, and the nearer we got to the top, the more people I saw who didn't look like they should be in the canyon. You know, heavier tourists and people with comically inappropriate footwear It doesn't surprise me that so many people have to be rescued out of the canyon each year, or even get themselves dead in the canyon each year. Once we could see the trailhead, it got psychologically easier, and we pushed through the crowd. I threw in a little running at the end, just out of pride and ego and spite, 
and we got some kind tourists to take our picture and made our way through the afternoon crowds to the car. In the end, it took us eh, nine hours or so round trip. It was hard. I'd say it was about as hard as running a marathon. Not racing a marathon, but running a marathon for fun. And I think anyone in good half marathon racing shape could do the in and out in a day if they were conservative and careful, especially if you just went to the river and back. Mountain running and trail running experience would be a big plus. When we got to the car, there was a line of about a 100 tourists waiting for the shuttle buses. That made us feel pretty smart and self-important as we got into our car. I drove us over to Sedona for the evening, and Teresa immediately fell asleep in the car. And my legs were tired, my feet were sore and hot, and not specifically tired like from a marathon, but all over tired. And for the next three to four days, my quads, hips, glutes, calves, every other major and minor muscle in my legs were just overall sore. Uh, My eyelids were pretty heavy, too, (laughs) as we drove over to to Sedona. My Fitbit said I climbed 439 flights of stairs and burned over 5,000 calories. So that was kind of amusing to post up. We got to our rental house and got cleaned up, and I took one of the top 10 best hot showers I've ever had. We met my sister-in-law, Jill, the massage therapist, for a nice Italian dinner, went back to our bungalow down by Oak Creek, and slept like the dead. And of course, I had conference calls starting at 7 a.m. East Coast time, so I was up, (laughs) up and at them early. And later that morning, Teresa and I went for a walked down by the creek and did some yoga when we got back to loosen up a little bit. And we felt pretty good. We were happy. We made our way back to Phoenix. We found a really good barbecue restaurant for dinner. And then we hopped on the red eye to get home for Saturday morning. I am so happy to have been able to snatch this time with my daughter. We built some memories. We had some fun. I think she might be telling her grandchildren someday (laughs) about that time we ran down into the Grand Canyon and back. I got to check something off my bucket list. As Coach says, I get to die with one more memory and one less regret. We did that thing that the universe didn't want me to do, and we did it well. It was beautiful and hard, but not hard enough to break us. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, that's it. You have made it. You may have been listening to seven podcasts in seven days on seven continents, but you have finished episode 4-340 of the Run Run Live podcast. It's getting hot up here in New England. Summer has arrived. Buddy the old wonder dog has full, thick coat of black fur and isn't really designed for the heat. He's not running much anymore. The girls take him for walks in the woods, and I bring him out sometimes for the first 20-minute loop if I'm doing a slow trail run in the woods. And he gets out on the weekends with me to run errands and visit people. He gets a lot of cuddling with the girls at night when they force him to sit with them on the couch while they watch TV. But his distance running career is pretty much over. His hips hurt him too much for the long stuff. And he never liked to run the heat to begin with. I can still remember him running all those miles with me that summer I trained for the Vermont 50 miler. But he has a big heart. He's a good dog. I'll have to work in some swimming trips down to the pond for him this summer. And I have to tell you that I was pretty beat up this week. (laughs) I flew down to Atlanta as scheduled on Monday, but have felt, you know, awful all week with that sore stomach and uh, really low energy, some sort of stomach bug, taking advantage of my weak biome from the antibiotics from a couple weeks ago. I guess I'll have to rebuild my biome. I'm going to be like Buddy and eat grass. All of this travel and weirdness makes working out a challenge. I was in such good shape for Boston, and I feel like I've lost a lot of that fitness. And I'm, yeah, I'm not going up to Vermont this weekend to run a marathon on Memorial Day. Yeah, that's not going to happen. So they get my $150 donation to whatever their good cause is. 
I'm instead going to shift my training and focus on the Spartan race at the end of July. And I've been looking into it, and I do believe I'm in for a learning experience. I was a wrestler in high school, but it's been a long time since I've been in that kind of total body shape. The first couple workouts I've done for this have been comically challenging for me as I try to do just one (laughs) chin-up. But that's why we do these things, to learn something new, to be challenged, to push yourself in a different or weird direction. And I've been doing a lot of research on the obstacles in the race, and I think I can simulate some of them. There's a lot of climbing and carrying and crawling and even some throwing and hundreds and hundreds of burpees, which we used to call squat thrusts in wrestling practice. It's like boot camp. should be fun. So even though I'm burnt out (laughs) with the travel, the pneumonia, the canyon, and the stomach bug, I'm feeling like I need to lay down for a couple days, but I won't. These kind of challenges are part of life. They are temporary setbacks. It's important to position them in your plans as temporary setbacks. There are small setbacks like these, and there's big setbacks. You can't use them as excuses to turn away from your course. The danger when you give in to setbacks is that it permanently changes your path. When you let those setbacks dictate to you what you can do or can't do, it changes your velocity, your momentum, your direction. There's always going to be setbacks and challenges, and they're always going to be poorly timed, inconvenient, and unwanted. You have to accept that those things are going to happen. They're part of life. You keep moving. You do what you can to recover and continue on your path. That's grit. And when you keep going, even when it sucks, that's grit. If you keep moving, keep pushing, hold your course, eventually the universe will bend back around to meet you in your success. So keep pushing, and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. I had toured the area. (laughs) Everyone had warmed us. (laughs) Warmed us. That's funny. See, that's Freudian or something, right? 